Welcome to The Savvy Innovators, presented by BMC Software. Your host for the program is Bonnie D. Graham. This program will help guide you to look at innovation in your business as an effective means to a more impactful digital future. Find out how innovative technology can make a difference for your enterprise. Now, here is Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy to be here. This is our final episode of the year, and rumor has it we may be coming back with more fresh content in 2023. Bonnie D. in the house, and we have an important topic for you. It's a four-letter word. It's a really good one, a popular one, an important one. It's data. Come on, you're dealing with it all the time, everywhere, everywhere. Everything you do, it's somewhere. Are you keeping it? Are you storing it? Do you know what it's good for? What's it doing for your company? That's my unrehearsed opening. I do have a monologue I wrote. <laughs> I'll be introducing my guests in a second, but I want to do a shout out to Stephanie Grubbs and Janelle along Dia Cabana. Happy birthday, Janelle. You knew I was going to sneak that in there. And to Hannah Cho at BMC for being wonderful sponsors and showrunners of this series all year long. So let me tell you what we're really talking about. I have a quote from IDC. They ran a recent global data sphere forecast. I've never heard of that word. It's data with a capital D, S sphere, all one word, forecast for 2021 to 2025. And listen to this. They predict that global data creation and replication will experience a compound annual growth rate. Those of you in finance may know that's a CAGR, 23% over that five-year period, leaping to 181 zettabytes, has two, D, two Ts, by the way, in 2025. That's up from 64 zettabytes of data in 2020, which is tenfold increase from 2012 of 6.5. That's a heck of a lot of data. Then I have a quote from red-gate.com. I found this in my research. One zettabyte is equivalent to one with seven groups of three zeros, okay, bytes, or 250 billion DVDs. Can you imagine what's on 250 billion DVDs? My house isn't big enough for that much. Where is the growth coming from? Well, we all remember something happened to the world in 2020. People stayed home from their jobs, from what they were doing. And all of a sudden, they were accessing online everything. They were doing work. They were doing learning, entertainment, helping their families. And the problem was less than 2% of the new data they created was saved. What happened to the rest? Well, it was just immediately use it and get rid of it or put it somewhere temporarily and then write over it with more data. The bottom line, not a lot of data was actually served, saved. So here's the scoop. Data is everywhere, everything we do. All of the data can be a goldmine for businesses. We're talking to a global business audience right now. So we're talking to you, everybody who's watching us on LinkedIn this morning. We're East Coast time. I'm on, let's see, 10.03 a.m. East Coast and listening to us live on the Voice America Business Radio channel. So you know data is everywhere. How can you capture it? How can you save it? How can you analyze it? How can you use it correctly? It is not an easy task. Everybody's hearing about data-driven organizations. How do you get there? Well, can you harness the data, disparate data, disparate data, structured, unstructured data, and pull out those actionable insights and save them somewhere? Do you know what it's worth? Well, I have a very interesting panel of three savvy innovators. That's why you're here, Phil and Jenny and Maria. I don't know if you've been called savvy innovators, but today you officially are in the Savvy Innovators Club. I just decided that we're going to have a club of savvy innovators. So I'm going to ask Phil Vincenzi. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Phil, just wave hello. Did I say it okay? You're close enough. <laughs> Come on. Give me the real word. How do I say it? It's Phil Vincenzi. 
Vincennes, thank you very much. Hi. We have Maria F. Glansky. Hello, Maria. Wave hello. I think I got that right. And we have Jenny Glansky. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if you're on the radio, you can't tell, but I can see them and their sisters. I just found that out. I'm going to ask them for their insights and what's going on with the true value of data today. How do different industries optimize their data? What are the challenges of dealing with large data sets? Uh-huh, I hear everybody in the audience say, oh yeah, we got to deal with that all the time. And what is the potential value that data can bring to your organization's technology platforms and your human interactions? So the question on the table is, what is the true value of your data? Welcome again, I'm Bonnie D. Happy to be here. Very important topic. Four letters in the word, but it's huge because it deals with every company everywhere. Phil? Vincenzi's, I'm going to ask you to please introduce yourself. Phil, I'm putting you on speaker view. People want to know, who are you? What do you do? What is IntelliDyne? And most important, why are you an expert and an innovator on this topic? Phil, welcome. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, great to be here today with everybody, Jenny and Maria. Um, but uh, for everyone else, again, my name is Phil Vincenz. Uh, I'm the Chief Analytics Officer for IntelliDyne. We are a large government contractor in the Washington, D.C. area, and a few of our clients include the Defense Department, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, I like to think of our analytic work as really being agnostic to any specific domain, and, and we run the gamut from behavioral health and suicide prevention to cyber analytics, Air Force combat modeling and simulation, and uh, recently automating the administration of IT networks that run our Navy ships and submarines. I've been in the tech industry for over 40 years, uh, so I'm an old guy, and uh, I started my career in uh, software engineering, and I lived actually firsthand and hands-on through what I call the Infotech's renaissance period, which is the birth of Unix, uh, the, the the world's first relational database. I, I worked extensively in that, um, and I was with everyone else at the beginning of the object-oriented development uh, phase, uh, and more recently, robotic process automation mm -hmm. and uh, advanced analytics, and including AI and ML. My my passion and my interest in data analytics was really born out of the the events during 9/11. Uh, most of us can remember exactly what we were doing and where we were on that day. I happened to be in front of the Pentagon. I was sitting in my car. Uh, I, I was in front of the helipad, actually in front of the building, and wondering why the helicopter that I just watched land. Why did it take off so suddenly? And then a couple of seconds later, the plane flew directly overhead. Um, on its way into the building. So I was there up close and personal uh, to the entire event. And that got me uh, being a being a, an army brat myself. My dad was in the army. Um, it, it just sort of like ignited my patriotism. Um, and I decided right then and there that I, I had to do something about it. Um, it was a shocking, uh, it was shocking to me, shocked to my core. Um, but it's what inspired me to, to push uh, the envelope of what uh, wasn't at that time yet thought of, of as analytics. Um, so as the war progressed, in its early stages, I built teams uh, that pioneered the development of what we now call and know as open source exploitation. So I, I developed tools, my teams developed tools and techniques that enabled our exploitation team to find and data mine and translate information from the dark web. Um, so we we were lurking around in terrorist chat rooms, uh, you know, following the rotating site URLs that contained IED and suicide vest and bomb making materials and formulation uh, and operating plans. And so that's that's kind of what got our start. Uh, we called that the Jihadi Exploitation Team. And, and we also, at the same time, uh, trying to find out who these individuals were, pioneered uh, the, the art uh, and the science of social network graphing to collapse 
terrorist online identities uh, into the individuals that they truly were. So those were the days when none of us wanted to go home. Uh, we, we couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. Um, I called them the, my merry band of nerds, data nerds. We're using data science, but we didn't know it at the time because that term didn't exist. Um, so we're using data science to find the bad guys doing bad things. And so for me, that was my defining moment for getting passionate about using data uh, for national security purposes. And, and I haven't looked back since. And I, I absolutely love what my teams do. Uh, and, I, and I live it every day. Thank you very much. Well, that was a spin on the value of data. We didn't expect, Phil. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just a quick sidebar. I'm considered an early woman in tech because I was what used to be called a programmer analyst back in the day, coding in COBOL on a Xerox Sigma 6 CP5 and key punching my cards and carrying a box with 2,000 cards and giving them to the operator who loaded them into the computer. And the data was stored. Ladies, you will, won't believe this, Marie and Jenny, I'm sure. I had to stand on a step stool when I was training in operations as well, a step stool in my high heels to climb up to reach a disc pack that looked like a great big huge cake carrier with a handle on top and load it into a drawer that was a disk drive. Now today, what do we have? Thumb drives, we have flash drives, we have CDs, we have mini CDs. What do we have where data is stored? Well, it was huge and the computer room was the size of a warehouse and the wiring was under the floor. And I know Phil remembers those days. And oh, I still, yeah. have, still have my COBOL book and I still have my silver book and I still have my green bar paper with core dumps. And I was good at it, Phil. Let's move on. Thank you very much. You just brought back the old days. Let's go to Maria Glensky. Maria, we're so happy to have you here. Love to have you tell us all about you. What do you do? What's your passion for the topic? Welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. So I am a senior data scientist in the National Security Directorate at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, or PNNL, where I'm also the team lead for computational social science in the Foundational Data Sciences Group in the Artificial Intelligence and Data Analytics Division. That's not enough kind of hierarchy or, or divisions mm -hmm. down for everyone to track. Uh, PNNL is one of the U.S. Department of Energy's national laboratories. It's managed by the DOE's Office of Science, and PNNL in general advances the frontiers of knowledge, taking on some of the world's greatest science and technology challenges, including some really awesome work that's done in my division or my group or my team. Personally, I lead research and research teams that are focused on research that models, characterizes, and explains complex systems and behaviors from humans in online and offline settings, things like information spread and how different users react, curate, or consume different content, to understanding or explaining human AI collaborative systems and novel directions or applications of trusted and responsible AI, going beyond aggregate metrics to evaluate robustness, accountability, fairness, and transparency of AI and ML models, not only how they work, but in what situations they work better, how can we explain uh, how they're making their decisions or judgments. And in all of those areas, the foundation of this work is the data. You can't do any of it without the data that is observing the world around us, the phenomena, how people interact, how humans interact, um, how AI and ML interact. So that's one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about data is because without data, I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> that's a reason to be passionate. Oh, Maria, that was beautiful, beautifully put. And it's true, data, 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 it's all around us. But what are we doing with it for it to us? Do we even know that we're generating data? Do people understand that everything we do leaves something somewhere? And most people would understand that in terms of social media footprint that never, ever goes away Tell your kids. Okay, let's move on. Jenny Glensky, happy to have you here. Jenny, please let us know what you do. What's your passion for the topic? And why are you an expert on data? Jenny, welcome. Thank you. So I'm Jennifer Glensky. 
and I'm the Director of Product Management in BMC Software's Innovation Labs. BMC is a software and information technology company that helps enterprises run and reinvent their businesses. We get to work on a bunch of cool projects. I focus a lot on data and analytics type projects because my background is in the data science and analytics space. Been working in that industry for the last decade, and I'm excited now that I get to apply that to building new products and finding out more information about what our customers are using data for. For example, we have a value of data survey that I've been working on. I'm excited to see the results from that coming up in February and using that to help design new solutions and exciting things. So my passion for data really comes from being able to improve solutions and experiences for customers. So progress, improvement, better design, all of that is where I get my joy of discovery and using data and where I see the value. Joy of discovery of using data. That was lovely, Jenny. I think we could, we could, that's an iconic moment. Write that down. When I send you the audio track, that was about oh, 12 minutes into the show, 13 minutes. Find that and use that sound clip. Uh, I'm talking to Stephanie and Janelle as well. Use that sound clip from Jenny. That's really, really cool. Thank you all for your introductions. I appreciate it. I have great respect for your professionalism, all three of you and what you do. And you're also invested in your roles and in being creative about how you use the value of your education, your expertise, your passion for the topic to do good things. So let's go to the opening quotes. If somebody is a new listener or viewer to the show, I ask my guests in advance to send me a quote from a fictional movie or TV character or a song lyric that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic. I don't know too many songs about data, but I bet they're out there and they're going to relate the song lyric or the movie characters quote to the topic in their own words. Bill, you're up first. And Phil has sent us a quote from a song. First time, the song is by Lizzo. Her real name, I didn't know this. I don't know why I would. Now I'm a fan, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> Melissa, Melissa Vivian Jefferson, born in 1988. She's a baby. Lizzo is an American singer, rapper, and flutist. I didn't know I played the flute in the junior high school band. Uh, this is a quote from her song, and the quote is the same as the title, About Damn Time. It was released in April of 2022. It's a lead single from her fourth studio album, and all I'm going to say is that in 2019, three years ago, Time named Lizzo Entertainer of the Year for her meteoric rise and her contributions to the music industry. So here's the quote. Phil, do good stuff with it. Tell us what it has to do with data, data, data. It's right. about damn time. And I have to tell you, Phil, I listened to the song. I found the YouTube clip. And All right. it really got me excited because I'm a child of the, well, a young adult of the disco era. I was a disco dance teacher. I'm a drummer now. And I listened to that song. I was jumping off my chair and almost wanted to run in the other room and get my sticks and drum it because it is, <laughs> it's a throwback to the 80s and it was great. So thank you, Phil. Now tell awesome. us what the quote has to do with the topic. And, and who would have thought a guy like me would have come up with that one, right? Even Stephanie was surprised. She <laughs> said, you're not going to believe the quote that Phil picked. Seriously. Well, well, when you when you actually when you asked for us each to come up with a, a pop culture quote, I immediately thought of two possibilities, and it's about them. Time was one, and my my wife actually helped me with that one, um, and also Justin Timberlake's "Bringing Sexy Back" came to, came to mind, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to try to tie those together. But um, so so I know everyone's on the edge of your chair trying to figure out how how am I going to 
how am I going to tie these back to the topic? But um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this a really long time. I actually predate databases. And, uh, and since I can remember data wrangling, prep cleanse, ETL, whatever you want to call it, has been always been the bane of existence for, for those of us doing anything significant uh, in size with analytics. And it's, it's definitely not the sexy stuff that we all thought we went to school for. Um, and it's the rare bird that enjoys the tedium of doing all of that and preparing data for analysis with, with conventional tools. But you, you got to love those that do that. And so I remember when I was a CTO for a British information uh, intelligence company around 2006, uh, we, we thought that we had invented the term advanced analytics, and there were really very few companies at the time that could do it very well. So we were doing some really edgy stuff around uh, bank fraud detection and, and you know, exploiting and data mining dark web and, and, and intercepting analysis and doing video content analysis in real time. And we all thought that was really cool. And our customers absolutely loved how new and shiny all that was. And so did my staff. Uh, everyone, wanted to, everyone wanted to be involved in it. Um, creating that cool, shiny stuff. But uh, the poor database admins and the developers that were sort of locked in the back room, so to speak, writing code to scrub, clean, and make sense of all of this data got zero credit for doing the grunge work that in reality was the secret sauce that allowed the shiny stuff to happen. So it's kind of like in football, you know, you've got the blockers and the tacklers that are making way for the, you know, the quarterbacks and the running backs to get all the glory. So fast forwarding to today, uh, we now do have cool tools to play with data. We, we create data pipelines. We can develop automated prep and cleanse data workflows. Uh, and we're using data science platforms that takes the tedium out of the work. And, mm -hmm. and now everyone is clamoring to be the new thing. And the new kid on the block is really the data engineer. And so after many failed analytic initiatives, you know, my clients are now finally realizing the benefit of getting the data part right the first time. And so, mm -hmm. so for me to bring it all back together again, you know, when Lizzo is singing, it's about damn time. For me, it's about recognizing that how important uh, getting the data right is. Uh, and these new platforms are, are bringing sexy back, so to speak, uh, to what used to be the grunge job. So you see how we got two quotes in there from pop culture at the same time. Phil, you are amazing. Hope Everybody. I, I am. I'm an infinites infinitesimally proud. Ladies, let's give them a round of applause. That was very, very well done. Very clever, Phil. I'm impressed. Thank you very much. Timberlake quote would have been cool, too. Let's go to Maria Glensky. Maria has picked a quote from Janet, who is a live virtual play, play, assistant played by the actress Darcy Beth Carden, who was born in 1980, a little bit older than Liz. Oh, boy, we're getting young quotes here. The TV series is The Good Place. This is from season one. It was an NBC TV American fantasy comedy sitcom from 2016 to 2020. Only four seasons and 53 episodes. I'm just going to say, wow, the show won a lot of awards. Uh, Darcy Beth Carden is an actress and comedian, and apparently... Maria, she played lots of versions of Janet. There was Michael's Janet. There were good Janets. I don't know how many. There was a bad Janet. There was a neutral Janet. There was an Eleanor Shellstrop. There was a Chidi Anagoni. There was a Jason Mendes and a Tahani Al Jamil and a disco Janet. That's the one I'm going to say was my favorite, even though I've never watched the show. So here is the quote Maria has picked from the many quotable moments of Janet. Oh, really? Is it an error to act unpredictably and behave in ways that run counter to how you were programmed to behave? I can't imagine what you're going to do with this. Maria, talk to us. Go ahead. 
Thank you, Bonnie. Yeah, this is one of the first uh, quotes that I thought of when we were asked. Uh, big fan of The Good Place. Um, have seen all of the Janets. Big fan of all of those. Um, but the way that I thought about this first is that this is this encapsulates a lot of data for some of the, the products that I work with and work on, and especially my work in responsible and trusted AI and evaluating going through, kind of going beyond aggregate metrics where we say, great, it worked in your test set, but suddenly we put it out in the wild and it's got new data. And this new data causes it to act unpredictably or for it to not know what to do. And especially when you're working in systems or challenges that have data that's ever evolving, if you're using open source data, like that is changing by the minute, if not the second. Um, and so there's always kind of an, a, an important attention to make sure that you are getting the right data, getting quality data, cleaning it appropriately so that what you're using the data for, whether it's analysis or um, training models or evaluating models, um, or supporting human AI collaborative systems uh, to be able to understand what it's doing and why. And when it starts acting unpredictably, I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, the model is broken or the system is, is going wrong. What's happening? And a lot of times it takes looking back at the data and saying, ah, well, you know, we need to diversify the, the data that's going in, or there's this sudden shift in what's happening. And our system, our model, our analysis wasn't expecting that. Oftentimes that can give us new insight and new understanding and help us build a better solution to address really critical challenges. Uh, but it is not easy. And it is, um, this is kind of how I think that our, our systems, our analytics, our models um, might respond back to us if we came to, the, came to the table and said, hey, why have you suddenly gone off the rails? Have them go, really? Is it an error to act unpredictably? And behave in ways that run counter to how your programs behave. Is that a problem, or is that a uh, you know an opportunity for for more growth in this area? <clears throat> Thank you very much. Very very well done. I'm thinking of a, a phrase we used to use when you were when I was coding look, big programs in COBOL for a statewide information system for Oregon, and then I did it in New York for another company as well. We had a phrase. Phil may remember this. It's G I G O garbage in garbage out. Mm -hmm. What is the data set you're feeding into your program? All the wonderful smart coding in the world and the branches and the go-tos. And I'm going to report this and you put, you know what, and it starts with an S and ends with a T, a couple of letters in between, and you're going to get out what you put in. And that the big question is, where are you getting the data? How new is it? How old is it? How is it being stored? Is it in a lake? Is it in a swamp? Is it an ocean? Is it fresh? Is it good? Who has touched it? What has been done to it? How do you access it? And how do you get those gems of actionable insights that help businesses run better? A lot, a lot of questions on the table. Thank you, Maria. Appreciate it. You're bringing back memories from my good old days. Now I'm in my good new days. Shiny objects, Phil, shiny objects. Jennifer has picked a quote. Jenny has picked a, a quote that's just iconic. And there's a little backstory. I won't take up too much time. The quote is from Chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider. It's no in it. It's not Schneider. It's Scheider. The movie is 1975. Everybody sing the theme song with me. Do, 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 do. It's Jaws. Okay. Thriller film directed by who else? Steven Spielberg, based on a novel, 1974 novel from <coughs> about a man eating great white shark attaching, attacking people on the beach in a summer report. Resort town and Chief Brody is hunting it with a marine biologist, Richard Dreyfus, and a professional shark hunter, Robert Shaw. Now, here's the deal. Apparently, Daryl F. Zanuck and the other producers, David Brown, were very stingy. And they had boats that were carrying the equipment and nothing was big enough. Mm 
and they didn't have enough craft services, meaning how do you feed your crew and your actors? And Roy Charter started saying, you're going to need a bigger boat. Well, it wasn't in the script. It wasn't in the movie. It wasn't supposed to be there. And he kept saying it. And every time something came up that was cheap, he'd say, going to need a bigger boat. And everybody started saying it. When it came time to film these segments, he kept saying it. And then when it came time to finish the movie, on the cutting room floor, there was a woman named, I have her name here somewhere. She did, she was the editor. And guess what? She didn't remove it from the script. So it made it into the movie and it became one of the most iconic movie lines in movie history. And it's number 35 on the American Film Institute's top 100 movie quotes list. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Jenny, help me out here. What does this have to do with data? I love the quote, by the way, as if you can't tell. Go ahead, Jenny. Great. Yeah. So I just watched Jaws for the first time this summer at the beach. And so that was the first time I ever heard that quote. And it came to mind because when we think about data, when we think about organizations running their businesses on data, a lot of them want to be data informed or data driven. They're finding that they sometimes need to scale up their infrastructure or their processes. Their approach is because there's just so much you can do with data and there's so much data you can have. Sometimes you want to do all of it. And so that idea comes along where you're going to need a bigger boat in order to do all that. And you don't necessarily need bigger everything, but you do need to be smarter about your approaches, employ some things like automation, uh, improving your pipelines, all that sort of stuff that Phil talked about earlier as well, really relates to my quote, because you need to do more, you want to do more. Sometimes the impulse is just make everything bigger. Let's get a bigger everything, but you can be smarter about it too. Doesn't necessarily mean you need a bigger boat itself all the time. Thank you very much. Very well done. By the way, the name of the lady who was the editor who decided to leave it in the movie was Verna Fields. We have to give her credit. She said, this is really cool. Oh, very, very smart. I can't imagine how many times I'm guessing Daryl Levzanik and other people who are paying for the movie said, nah, nah, that's not nice. It's a cool line. It made one of the, it made the top 100 movie quotes. Very, very cool. Thank you to the three of you for being so thoughtful in selecting the quotes. Uh, Maria, very well done. And Jenny, one of my favorites. And Phil, what can I say now? I have to be a fan of Liz. I'm going to have to figure out how to drum to her songs. And I'm going to start doing the hustle again if I can find a partner. That 80s sound is just oh, wonderful. Phil, let's go to the part of the show where I've asked each of you <laughs> to send me four statements on the topic. I'm going to pick one from each of you, and here's how we will proceed. Phil, I'm going to read your statement number one because I think it's a perfect way to really do a solid level set on what our topic is. I'm going to read it. And then I want Jenny and Maria to sit at the edge of your chairs. Well, you know, pretend. And I'm going to ask Maria first when Phil is done. Phil, three minutes. That's your cap on that segment. Maria, agree or disagree with Phil? That's your thought leadership on his statement. Jenny, we'll get you to chime in and agree or disagree with Phil and or with Maria. Phil, I'll give you a 60-second chance to rebut or recap or just say, that was great. Thank you. I have nothing to say, which I don't believe you will. <laughs> and, and then I will move on. Maria, at that point, I will have picked one of your statements and put it in a private chat to you. So you'll know I'm not going to spring it on you. So Phil, here's what you said. I like this. You say data. And more specifically, the study and applied use of data has a real or potential impact on every living thing and entity on the planet. Now, Phil puts air quotes around these potential impact, 
because data in and of itself is completely worthless. How we apply the knowledge provided by data has the potential to make data priceless. This is the core of our entire topic today, the real value of data. So, Phil, why don't you level set for us on data worthless? Really? What? Go ahead. Shock every shock everybody. They weren't expecting uh, I know this. it's so controversial. It um, is. So so to me, you know, data is just that. It's data. You know, I, I kind of grew up uh, in the era, it sounds like, with, with Bonnie. Um, you know, I actually was taking assembler uh, classes. Me too. Me too. So, so yep. you know, we're talking about the nitty-gritty guts of computing. Um, it's it, You know, data is just that. It's just a bunch of zeros and ones. It has no real meaning or value unless we trust it and then overlay some type of analysis or interpretation, translating it into something that's usable um, and, and gains knowledge. So if I go back to my high school physics days, um, you know, I think of data as static or potential energy for those, you know, for, for those of you who remember those physics days. Um, it has the capacity for value. Um, the, the, the value was held within the data. It's there, but it's waiting to be realized through the work that we all do as curators of that data and, and analyzers of the data. So, and that's our job. Uh, our job as analysts and data scientists is to release that value uh, that the data holds. So at the end of the day, going back, you know, if I go back to my high school physics class again, the data's value is only really realized when we're able to make it available in a way that allows it to transition from that static state to kinetic, you know, kinetic energy, enabling movement, action, or some form of decision making to occur. So at that moment, for me, that's when data can become priceless. And an example, um, an example uh, that I'll just throw out to everybody is that a few years back, the defense, uh, the, the department's suicide prevention office asked me if it was possible to use their personnel data. They had vast resources of personnel data to identify soldiers that might be at risk for self-harm. And uh, this came at a time when military suicide was at an all-time high. I was granted access to the DOD's manpower data center, which contained over 230 personnel-related databases that covered everything that you can imagine, including demographic, uh, training data, uh, family history data, uh, medical deployments, casualties, and drug testing, and on and on and on. Uh, it was an overwhelming uh, amount of data. It was just sitting there for years, you know, presumably being used to report, you know, make reports, um, but but no no real action. Um, so the bottom line was that we were able to identify 23 risk indicators uh, and we scored each service member on risk, but we did this ethically and, and we did it anonymously. We, we didn't really want to finger anybody because of the, you know, the stigma to, to suicide is also was a career, you know, career limitations there as well. But the goal was to use the information to better understand the factors that contributed to risk so that the DOD could develop better policy and outreach programs and initiatives. And so in, in this specific case, uh, I bring this up because here the value of, of data can be measured as a life saved, which of course is priceless. Thank you very much. That was provocative to say the least. Thank you. Well, that's uh, a world we're dealing with even more now. So right, thank you, Phil. Right. Let's go to Maria. Respond, agree or disagree with any part, even the core of the value of data. Is it worthless? Is it priceless? What's that shift in between from, from that zero to that one, if we can go back to binary? Go ahead, Maria. I have to say I agree with what Phil said on the potential impact and that data alone, I mean, there's value in data alone, but a lot of that value is what that data can support, what that data can help drive, develop, or provide insights on. 
but data alone is is hard to have intrinsic value outside of that potential, especially if you're working with a lot of it. So on one of my projects, um, Mega AI, where we were looking at trying to build foundation multi multimodal and massive scale foundation models, and it's supported by our Mars initiative, Mathematics for Artificial Reasoning in Science. We're working with terabytes of data, and we're able to do really cool things with that. But those terabytes alone, if that was all that we were producing and it was just sitting on a shelf somewhere, how much value is there in that? If we can have these large-scale data sets that are supporting continued development, continued advances in the field and in science, there's incredible value there. But that data just sitting by itself alone and not being used to support anything, I think I would agree with Phil that a lot of the value is in that potential impact and how it's being used. How it's being used can be priceless how, by whom, when, and where, right? What's the purpose? What's the goal? Who's touching the data? So many, there's so many tentacles to this topic. Jenny, chime in, please. You're up. I agree with Bill's point that it's like kinetic energy or potential energy that gets transformed. I think of data when it's being collected and not yet used. I still see it as value. I see it like a treasure a treasure waiting to be uncovered by someone and that uncovery process uh, or treasure finding process could be the application of that data. And I think of things where sometimes data is collected and it's used for a small purpose and you get the value there, but there's a potential for someone else later to come along and use that data, perhaps an aggregate with additional data, and then your value extends past the initial application. So the, the value you get from using data isn't just the sum of all the pieces of data, the whole can be greater. For example, if we're looking at a project I did in the past evaluating medical research and we're looking at cancer research, there's a lot of historical cancer research. And at each point in time, you might make a new finding or discovery that's valuable, but going on later, maybe a decade, you can look at the entire domain of that research. And some of those pieces can fill in the gaps of other studies, or you can see overarching trends that you wouldn't have gotten just from the initial collection and application of the data in the first place. Thank you very much, Phil. I'm going to give you a minute here to respond. I think we got a little uh, a little um, hesitation there, Jenny, on your feed. Go ahead, Phil. Talk to the ladies. What do you, uh, anything back to them? They basically agreed with what you said. Yeah, no, I, I was uh, I was happy to hear that, um, uh, and also uh, you know on, on on Jenny's statement about uh, data being a treasure, and, and that is very true. Um, I you know I would agree with that, and also agree that um, you know when you bring in disparate data sources and then connect them up, that is a ex- perfect uh, way of thinking of the sum is greater uh, you know than its parts. Um, and uh, you know I, I think that on the you know I, I think of the data just sitting though as being like money. It's not you know it's it it serves no purpose if it's not being used for something good. And so you know again I go back to my potential. Um, you know there's potential value there and, until you know unless you know, and until you use it. So um, but uh, but you know I think we're all in agreement that I think we're all in agreement. Thank you. I'm thinking of stocks <laughs> on paper. It looks great, but until you go to use it, the question is, what's the value there? What are you going to do with it? But I won't get into that. Okay, let's move on, Maria. Thank you uh, to Maria and Jenny. Really good comments back to Phil's statement. And Phil, thank you for a good opening discussion statement for the roundtable. Appreciate that. Maria, let's go to your statement number four. I'm going to read it brief and to the point, and there's a lot to chew on here. You say data 
is at the core of significant advances in AI or data science. But getting data AI ready, that's a term I'm not familiar with, is a significant challenge, especially when you're dealing with large-scale, open source, and human-generated data sources. I think that encapsulated the whole topic right there in that long sentence. Maria, unpack for us, please. Go ahead. Gotcha. I mean, at the core of this, data has, like, without data, you can't do these significant advances in AR data science, or a lot of them, really. You really need that quality data. Um, but a lot of times, if you're working with large-scale data, especially human-generated data sources, I mean, humans are messy. And AI and machine learning often doesn't love messy. They want to have nice, orderly, clean, um, kind of consistent format um, to work with. And humans, on the other hand, if we have, you know, comments where it's got, you know, full grammatical sentences, and then we switch to looking on our phones, and we've got, you know, abbreviation, shorthand, um, all sorts of things. And it's harder for AI and ML to kind of adapt to those kinds of different switches. So when you're working with AI and data science, that first step, you, you know, you've got your data, making sure that it is in an AI ready or a format that your AI can take and run with. So you can have those significant gains. So you can have those great solutions um, to these critical challenges um, in a kind of a slew of different domains, you know, in uh, computer science or AI data science, but then also in different domain sciences, like in computational chemistry or biology, or kind of, you know, name, name that category from school, um, so that you can have these different advances and leveraging these AI tools. But you want to make sure that you're working with um, representative data as appropriate. You're considering those ethical considerations of the data that you're using and that you're working with. You're considering how the data that you're using and how it's been cleaned or formatted will impact or influence the AI or machine learning systems or models or solutions that you're developing. If you have data and it's a little bit messy and you clean it completely, is it still applicable to that messy data that you're working with? Is getting it to the point of being AI ready, kind of moving it away from what it can work with and kind of focusing or pigeonholing it down? Or is there a way for you to get that large-scale data, like on some of my projects, working with terabytes worth of data and getting it into the format and the input needed for the model to really learn those connections, to be able to leverage the great gains and benefits of AI or ML uh, model systems, especially AI-assisted decision-making to reduce cognitive load on humans so we can make these critical tasks move faster or better. Um, but it's, it really is important for that, that data to be AI-ready um, and it's difficult. It's hard. Thank you very much. Great, great big picture there. I, when I hear about AI and machine learning, I think, whose algorithm is it anyway? You know, who decided, <laughs> who wrote the code? Who decided how to structure it? Who decided what data is going to come into that algorithm? Who decides what form the output will take? Whose life is it going to impact? So many, that, that's an absolutely huge topic. Maria, thank you. Jenny? You're virtually sitting next to Maria right now, so you get to respond, agree or disagree. Go ahead, Jenny. I would say the point that stuck out to me from Maria's comments was that when you're cleaning data and you get it to this beautiful, shiny data, you want to ask yourself, does this still reflect reality? Is the messy data set that I got to begin with, were there outliers in it? Was there nulls or missing values? What, why did those get in there? Is it a reason of poor data entry with somebody accidentally fat fingering the numbers or 
skipped a field? Or are these valid observations that we need to keep in? Because when you're running your business and you're running your operations, a lot of times you might have baselines. You want to improve a process or you want to improve a service or offering and you're checking against your benchmark or baseline. If you see things drop down, it might be, you know, instinct to say, oh, that that's a weird drop. That must be an outlier. Let's throw that out. But I would caution people before they do that to check, okay, is this an outlier that was bad data or is this a, a red flag or warning of something that we want to go look at first? So I would caution people before they scrub everything super clean that some of that messy data can be those signals that you're looking for in the data. Thank you. What interesting perspectives. Maria, see what happens when you have a really great opening statement. It just opens up the pipeline, which is a word I know is in one of Jenny's statements, the pipeline of thought about it. Phil, chime in, please. Three minutes. Max, go. Sure. Uh, Well, I have to say that I'm being an old guy here. I'm I'm very, very happy and pleased to hear that, that, that my younger counterparts are, you know, in agreement about the importance of having, you know, data quality, uh, focus on data quality. It's, this has been, this has been, over my career, one of the biggest challenges that I've faced in my analytics practice, it's been convincing customers of the need to invest more in the upfront basics, you know, the, the, the blocking and the tackling that I talked about earlier, um, any exercise of data prep and data quality, and, and resisting the temptation to cut corners and immediately focus too early on the, on the shiny analytic outputs. You know, you know, we all understand that customers want results now, and sometimes it's it's really hard to help them understand the importance of getting the data part right first. Um, you know, otherwise we can't trust the uh, trusted data, or it, it's unreliable and can lead to poor decision making and results. So, so getting it right means investing the time up front to improve the data quality, uh, address completeness issues and accuracy. Uh, ensuring that your also your data delivery. Uh, how are you delivering the data or the pipeline? You know, delivering the data when it's needed. Uh, sometimes this means a, a real time, which is some, you know, which can be expensive, but other times it's acceptable to have data latency, uh, accounting uh, information, for example, like month end reporting. So it's important, I think, to understand how and when your data is to be used so that you don't over or under engineer or invest uh, as well. So, uh, I, you know, one of our customers, I just give a little story of uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs, um, the Office of Information Security, their, their cybersecurity group, asked us to develop uh, a robotic process automation to automate a complex daisy chain of manual and semi-manual data prep routines that was written in a variety of really old technologies, Excel and VBA and, and SQL. Um, and they used this to populate their, their cyber <laughs> data warehouse. And the process was introducing a lot of error into the repository. So why would we want to robotically automate that, you know, to, to help it create errors faster? You know, no, obviously not. <laughs> and so we, we convinced them to abandon that idea in favor of using modern tools to create an automated data pipeline that performed all of that cleansing and prep activity within the workflows. And, and so today they have 13 automated data pipelines that run autonomously, they're error-free, and, and, and now we're able to focus on those outward facing shiny things, you know, some of the AI, uh, you know, endeavors or initiatives that they'd like to undertake, you know, dashboard reporting, compliance alerting for security and, and continuous assessment of security compliance. So I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Thank you very much. Maria, great starting point for a roundtable conversation. I like what you said about data is messy, people are messy, and you have to look at what the data really has. Sometimes you don't want to scrub it that clean and see what are the anomalies in the data. I guess that means don't throw it out 
yet, right? Keep it around and look at it. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Jenny, you're up next. I picked your statement number one because you're covering in this one. Well, this is why I ask for four statements from each of you because I'm getting a, a large view of how you feel about the topic, what you think is important to each of you. And that way I can pick and choose statements that will keep it very interesting for our audience and for me. Jenny, here's something we haven't covered yet. You say the value of data can be hard to measure in an enterprise, but, and here we go, this is your big global statement. Consider things like, is your data driving strategic decision-making, customer satisfaction, sustainability initiatives, reducing risk, and more. So what is the point of the data? Jenny, talk to us. Very interesting. Go ahead. Thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, exactly. So in a large enterprise, you can be using data for a variety of initiatives. And the core commonality there is that you want that data to be reliable. And what does reliable mean? Well, we've talked about that a little bit already. It's about having that data quality that you can trust. And the data quality doesn't mean throwing everything out that looks out of line or abnormal. It means recognizing those change events or those anomalies. It means getting the data values within the appropriate range that you're expecting. So if someone accidentally put in a million dollars and everything's really supposed to be $100, you catch that before it populates throughout your organization and you know pollutes your data lakes or data warehouses and things like that. Because it can be so hard to go back later and try and find all those pieces and scrub it and cleaning cleaning it up. So when you're considering your data and you're thinking, you know, should I be cleaning this data? How much do I want to be investing in this? Just like Phil's talked about, you don't want to over under engineer things, but you do need data pipelines and you need to automate them like he's talked about or orchestrate them. Because if you're using those that data to make important decisions or to make improvements to improve customer experiences, those end results can have a significant impact on the success of your business, right? If your customers don't like your product or they don't like the interactions they're having, they're going to find someone else to fill that need and you're going to be left behind. Or if you are using that to reduce risk and you make the wrong calculation, you could be signing yourself up for a situation that you're unprepared for and it could go yeah. south quickly. So to me, the value of data can be seen in the application of all these things, but ultimately what they share is it needs to be trustworthy. Trustworthy data, trustworthy analysis, trustworthy reporting, trustworthy results, trustworthy conclusions. Oh my, that's a big task. Phil, we're, uh, we got about eight minutes left, so I'm going to give you three minutes tight, and then Maria, let's see what you have to say about Jenny's statement. Phil, go ahead. I completely agree with data needing to be trustworthy. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, you're you're not going to be making you know, reliable decisions based on it. And and you know, it's 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 hard to imagine that there is any domain that wouldn't benefit from uh, from better practices and better hygiene in in data as well. And and in my long career, I've I've consulted with more organizations than I can count uh, commercial and government wise but one thing's been true about all of them every single one of them could could benefit with with, with doing more with their data either um, uh, their own data or the data of others but it has to, but it has to be curated and it has to be trustworthy uh, and I think that in many cases working with data has gotten a bad rap in the past um, older generations of leadership 
uh, old school thinking uh, that working with data was too hard or they didn't have the right people that knew what to do with it, or they were completely ignorant of the value of their data. And so I, I try to help these customers uh, see that they don't have to boil the ocean necessarily to invest excessively uh, to realize value. Um, I like to use the phrase crawl, walk, run. Um, so let's start small first, demonstrate the value, and then find the next bigger opportunity. Uh, an example of a couple examples that I have uh, come to mind uh, with the Department of Justice, uh, they, they wanted to predict uh, criminal and civil caseloads uh, in the coming year so that they could hire and staff appropriate uh, number and types of attorneys mm -hmm. in their 93 districts. And so we had to analyze the data in their case management system and that we also integrated many publicly available open source data. This kind of gets back to what Jenny was talking about earlier uh, when she talked about disparate data joining together some of the parts. Uh, we created uh, a data model for staffing projections and uh, it was very successful. Um, but the interesting thing was that it unexpectedly predicted the opioid crisis, which was uh, several years uh, forthcoming. Um, another uh, cool example uh, is the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Um, I was leading the Sandia National Labs modeling and simulation team uh, for the first ever five-day national cyber exercise and included uh, participation from 130 agencies and, and five allies uh, using data models to simulate uh, economic and health impact from imaginary adversaries uh, you know, such as Pakistan uh, attacking critical infrastructure. Um, so we, we simulated them shutting down the D.C. water system, disrupting the East Coast rail, freight and transportation systems, and then just a, a train hitting a, a phosgene tank and, and, and dispersing a cloud into a heavy populated area in New Jersey. And, and the purpose was all of this to learn how President Obama uh, and each of the agencies and our allies would respond to these events uh, to curate lessons learned. Um, and after action. So, you know, ha having all of this information, being able to trust the modeling and the simulation uh, that's being done uh, for these exercises, for example, uh, being able to trust that the predictions that we're making about attorney staffing next year um, are accurate enough to, to make economic decisions on, I think that's, you know, critically important um, and, and you, have, you have to earn that. Thank you very much. You've certainly covered the gamut with your examples, Phil. Appreciate that. Maria, it's your turn to comment on what Jenny said and or what Phil shared. Go ahead, Maria. Thank you. I, I really appreciate Jenny's comments on being intentional with the data and especially yes. identifying early on um, if there are issues, if there are um, errors in your data, and then it goes further into data lakes or not only your data lakes, but kind of joint data lakes with others or other solutions or methodologies. Um, those issues can snowball and it, it is hard to go back and try to um, kind of identify or, or align where that's coming from or, or uh, how it got introduced. And so being intentional with the data that you're using and intentional with when you're using data-driven um, methods for decision-making on what you're doing or supporting in your different types of approaches or methodologies. Sometimes it's important to take a top-down view and see whether the data backs up what you're looking at or investigating rather than purely relying on what the data is telling you, especially if you're not confident in the quality or source or coverage representativity of the data itself of whether that answer is going to be the full answer or only a partial answer on what you're looking into. Thank you very much. Jenny, great conversation starter. Anything you'd like to say back to your colleagues on the panel, Jenny? Yeah, to Maria's point just now, when you're trying to figure out, you know, is this good data? Is this bad data? 
I'm noticing a lot of organizations missing that piece. They want some sort of measure, like how good is this data? What's the quality of score of this? And that can be challenging, especially if you're not using, you know, so orchestration or automation tools and you're doing a lot of manual things put together, you don't have that top-down overarching view. I think that is really critical and really important, like Maria was saying. Thank you. You're bringing back memories. We, we had a structure, Phil, you remember this in programming and coding called top-down, where you would decide the functions, the, the key core functions that a program was going to cover, and you would get those set up at the beginning, and then you would branch out to all of the parts of the structure that would support that. So it was top-down programming. You started right big with a macro at the top, and then you you branched out. Oh, Phil, I love my programmer days. I really did. <laughs> um, I, I want to just introduce a term. We just have a couple minutes left, but a term that came up on one of my other radio shows a couple of years ago was citizen data scientist. Ah, is there a job description for this? Are companies saying, we're looking for citizen data scientists, come and volunteer or get paid or be an intern? Is this something, I think that the phrase at the time was, uh, you could be XYZ job description role at, by day, and you wore a cloak and a cape like Superman or Supergirl or Superwoman or Super Puppy, and you were the data scientist by night. Anybody, I can take a quick comment. Uh, we've got about two and a half minutes left. Anybody want to comment on citizen data scientist and how does that fit into our topic? Oh, I didn't stump the panel. Did I feel you're dying to say something? Go ahead, uh, Maria. So, then Maria. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I believe, you know, in my career, I've seen the commoditization of many, many technologies. And I think that's where data science is headed. Um, it's, we're already seeing evidence of it. And, and, and when we're talking about citizen data scientists, to me, it just merely means that, you know, providing some of the, to the, the cool tools that make the analysis of information uh, a lot more, uh, a lot easier. And I, I've actually had conversations with Jenny about this in the past, um, uh, because I think that it kind of flies in the face a little bit about, you know, the, the hard, you know, that all the hard work you did as a, that, you know, PhD level data scientist to, to get to where you are. I think those skills are always going to be completely in demand and are required, but we need to get more uh, information and data value in the hands of the people that are making decisions and make that easier for them. Thank you, Maria. I know you wanted to comment. What do you got? Yeah, I think on the comment of like citizen data science, I think Phil mentioned earlier that the availability of the tools, um, things like having Python programming, the different communities and computer science open sourcing their methods, their data sets, their um, tools, or their analysis notebooks has a great opportunity for um, kind of the larger community beyond the existing research community to take advantage of those um, resources. Thank you very much, Jenny. Closing comments, I give you 30 seconds. Go. For citizen data scientists, that makes me think of as well. Oh, just involving stakeholders such as business analysts or data mm -hmm. consumers earlier in the process. So getting them involved in that data engineering, that data science, so they can have a say, participate, and have a better outcome in the end for their own purposes. Thank you very much. I appreciate the three of you, all of the behind the scenes prep work you did, getting your statements ready, picking really good quotes. I can't forgive you for the Lizzo introduction, Phil. I'm going to go play that music after the show. Uh, Maria and Jenny, very impressive ladies, your core of knowledge and your understanding and your approach to this. It's a, it's a big topic. I want to say thank you again to our showrunners, 
all year. I've been delighted and privileged to work with Stephanie Grubbs and Janelle Alongdiakabana and Hannah Cho at BMC. And I want to say thank you to Andrew, our engineer. Wish everybody a happy holiday. And uh, we've been covering a very important topic. I hope we'll do a part two next year. What is the true value of your data? Where is your data? What are you doing with it? Let's get down to the core here. So we've had three very savvy innovators today. Thank you, Phil Vincennes. I finally figured out how to pronounce your last name. Thank you, Maria Glensky. And thank you, Jenny Glensky. I wish you all a wonderful, happy, healthy holiday. Bonnie D signing off. And I hope we'll see you in 2023. Everybody wave goodbye to LinkedIn. Wave Bye. goodbye. Wave goodbye virtually <laughs> to Voice America Business. Thank you for listening to The Savvy Innovators, presented by BMC Software. Be sure to join host Bonnie D. Graham on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You may start small, but start today. Where will your innovation journey begin? Reach out to BMC Innovation Labs at www.bmc.com to chart your digital transformation course. 